The first step in getting closer to God is to realize that you need to or that you want to. And the second step in getting closer to God is to realize that it's possible. I want to encourage you to check out my book, Getting Closer to God, Anthologies from the Forefront Trilogy, Book 2. I think this will really be helpful to you in your pursuit of the Lord and help you understand what I learned over the first 30 plus years of my life as a believer, as a minister, and as a missionary in uh, a lot of the countries of the earth. Check it out. Anthologies from the Forefront, Book 2, Getting Closer to God. It's on Amazon. Welcome to Foundational Missions Leadership Moment. Join your host, Scott McClelland of FX Missions, as he deep dives into the lives of leaders to glean secrets that will propel today's leaders to new heights. Here's Scott. Hi, Scott McClelland here for your FX Missions Leadership Moment. Thanks for being with us. And uh, please do share the Leadership Moment with someone you know who's interested in growing in their leadership capacity. We think it'll have that effect. It certainly is our prayer that we do encourage you on your leadership journey, whether you're just starting or maybe you've been at it a while, like some of us. Uh, Speaking of folks who've been at it a while in the leadership space, I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Noah Manyika. Noah, welcome. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. We were just talking a little bit in the lead up here. It's been a while since we've talked. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've been busy. (laughs) I remember visiting with you in your Uptown Charlotte location, and I'm trying to think of the year. Oh, man. Yeah, that that must have been over. It's it's been over a decade, I think. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I enjoyed that. I remember also that you recommended to me a book during those days, and this may help us locate the time frame. You Hmm. recommended The Starfish and the Spider. Yes, 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 yes. It was a relatively new book at that time, I think. It sure was. It sure was. Yeah. So, yeah. So it must be about eight to 10 years ago in in that time frame. Yes. I've been in Texas eight years. So it was prior to that. So, yeah, we're, we're. We're getting younger, and then we'll yeah, enter we into eternal life. So thank exactly. God for that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here on the Leadership Moment. I think this will be the first of a few episodes. There's so much to talk about. I know that right now you're in the process of your dissertation, I believe it is, for an additional degree specific to leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe a little bit about where you're from and generally about your work. Okay, yes. I'm originally from Zimbabwe and I moved to the United States in 1994 as a Mm -hmm. missionary to work in at risk communities in the Charlotte area. And um, I did that for uh, almost two decades. And in the process, in fact, uh, what you referred to, uh, what I uh, just completed it, actually, I just defended my my dissertation mm. a week ago. On, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And it's on transformational leadership. And, and it's not because I, I, I love the pain of learning. Uh, it's my second uh, doctoral degree. But I, I did it because I wanted to obligate myself to disciplined thinking about issues of transformational leadership and utilizing Mm. 
all the experience that I had had in the Charlotte area, working in at-risk communities, and then also taking that back and seeing some of the issues in Africa as well. So in fact, my dissertation focuses on um, chiefdoms in Zimbabwe, some of the sociological and tribal structures of belonging that kind of contain people's ambitions and aspirations and so on and so forth. And so I've just completed that. And uh, it was an interesting journey. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those things are also applicable here because the structure of belonging is not just a chiefdom in Africa. A structure of belonging is the community in which you live wherever you are. Right, right. Congratulations again on your second doctoral degree. I can imagine it was some heavy lifting along the way, you know, that that seems it, it uh, sure intense. Was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to not to mention the cross cultural piece, right? That adds additional complexity. Yeah, it sure does. And it, it wasn't just heavy lifting because of the subject matter, but it was also heavy lifting because I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> well, so well, so you I, know, uh, when, and and I thank God for my wife for being there with me because it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, when you're at my age. You read through your work and you you miss all the, the I's, the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, and no matter yeah. how much you read them. But <laughs> but, oh. but but the subject matter that you refer to here, the cross-cultural piece, I think we're all learning how to live in the kind of world in which we are living. And we're learning every day. Yes. And the things that happen in one part of the world definitely does an, have an impact on another And also, there are so many learnings from the different cultures. We wouldn't be even in the controversies that we are in in the United States today if it wasn't for the reality of the times in which we're living, which challenge our assumptions about ourselves and about others. So it's an interesting time. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And I applaud you uh, getting or taking the challenge, if you will, at another degree when you already had one doctorate under your belt, even at, as you say, at an advanced age. You're, I'm guessing we're close to the same age. I'm going to say that. But maybe yeah, you're just I'm, to touch my senior. I'm almost in the seventh decade of my life now. <laughs> well, you're holding up really good, Noah. I got to <laughs> no, say thank that. You. <laughs> And praise God for your <laughs> strength you. and vi- uh, vitality at this age. And and for yeah. being a lifelong learner is something of, as you said, a discipline. It's a very important uh, at some point in our life, maybe the temptation to feel like we've learned everything that was available. Maybe we are in a position where we think that might be the case, but you went on, mm-hmm. you've continued to try to be aggressive about learning. And that also is yeah, applaudable. It, it's critically important. Yes, yes. Thank you. It, it's critical for leadership. I think the assumptions that we make a lot of times is that the accumulation of experience makes us understand everything, but the accumulation of experience merely prepares us to navigate new places, new ideas. So continuing to discipline yourself to learn is very, very important because it's the learning that makes you understand where you are. It's not the experience. The experience merely just prepares you to handle uh, the process of learning. That's what I found out in my own life and uh, also putting myself in a situation where I begin to learn from others, from the new generation. So Mm. my generation needs to be able to put itself in a position to learn even from our children because what our children deal with 
in the workplace, in the marketplace, we never dealt with. Mm. At the same time, our children should also be willing to actually get their gaps filled by what we know from what we have experienced. So I think I'm a better father. I'm a better boss, if you will, to those who Mm -hmm. work under me if I'm always learning because then I can engage them uh, much more uh, fruitfully. Yes, very, very key information there that, you know, as a key concept, I think, with respect to leadership, we have to be listening and learning all the time. There is so much I'd love to get into here. We don't have to hurry. I think we've got Mm -hmm. probably at least another 30 minutes. And we're going to break this up into segments. But the doctoral in transformational leadership, of course, with an extra credit, I think, applied to that for the cross-cultural thing. I'd like to dig into that a bit because we've been working cross-culturally in Africa since 2008. And that would have been a around right. the time that we met of course when yeah. i saw, when i met you at your place in uptown charlotte a gentleman was yes. with me who we were just getting ready to send off to south africa mm-hmm. he went as a missionary to south africa almost immediately after that's my friend rodney and he stayed mm-hmm. there for about a dozen years maybe 11 years he recently returned to the us So he had a cross-cultural experience immediately after our getting together there. And then I've Mm -hmm. been working off and on since 2008, supporting some ongoing work in Kenya, which is, of course, sub-Saharan Africa, but not next door to Zimbabwe, as I understand it. Do I have that right? Right. It's not not a close neighbor, but a a neighbor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's to the northeast, but not too far. About two countries to the northeast. Is it similar Culturally, in from your point of view, yeah, it, it, they, there are a lot of uh, similarities. In fact, it's interesting that we should be talking about this because a lot of times people look at Africa and they lump it as one, obviously, which mm, can be a problem yes. because there are fifty-four countries, yes. and then there are also different cultural constructs within that continent. And then there's sub-Saharan Africa, and then there's the northern part of Africa, which is mostly Arabic. But there are enough, I think, commonalities in sub-Saharan Africa and in some parts of sub-Saharan Africa that we could kind of identify a, a common culture, you know, but not everything is the same. In fact, I was thinking about this today because there is a um, famous poem which was written by Marcus Garvey in, at the beginning of the 19th uh, century, or of the 20th century rather, which is called Africa for the Africans. And basically, he painted with a very broad brush that Africa is this one big place that has to be the place of self-government for people of African descent. But that whole idea, uh, that whole black consciousness idea, also doesn't take into account the fact that the different geographies in different parts of Africa have also impacted how the uh, cultures of the people in that particular geography has evolved over the years. So mm. there is much commonality as there is much difference as well. <laughs> you know? Yes, and yes. Those are things that need to be understood. But a lot of times, you know, people look at Africa and they say, hey, Africa. And they look at somebody from Africa or from Zimbabwe as an African and they think we are necessarily going to have the same kind of thinking and behaviors as somebody who is, say, from Nigeria. Well, it's mm. true, but it's also not true. Right. And that's right. The, I think that's the challenge for people going 
to Africa seeking to bring about change and so on is that there are a lot of things that are just as compellingly true as there are a lot of things that are compellingly different. Yes, that reminds me of Latin American culture. I work in Latin America quite a bit. And the culture is there's a sort of an undergirding similarity between right. Central American culture and Mexican culture, but they are not the same thing. But there's exactly. a body of similarities. And then in some even some words that are that are routine in one country, the same word will be profane, you know, in the other countries. And they're interchangeable. <laughs> the words, you yes. know, the one here, the one there, it's just, it's interesting the way those things have developed. And I think exactly. it's important for us to not just, as you say, group it all together in every way. Well, you know, I can give you an example from Charlotte, a learning of mine many years ago. We had a lot of people who were Hispanics move into a community that we were serving. What we didn't realize is that they were mostly from El Salvador. And uh -huh. what we assumed is that, El Sal you know, because they were Hispanic, there is no difference between those from El Salvador and for people from Mexico. Well, they are. Right. <laughs> you know? And those are things that you have to be conscious of. So I, I think that a lot of people have a difficulty properly exegeting the communities that they target for transformation. And a lot of assumptions come in to the exegeting of communities, which really should be challenged. And a lot of mm -hmm. these things you can never really find out until you uh, actually immerse yourself in the community in which uh, the, the one that you, you seek to transform. Yes. In fact, the interesting thing, Scott, is that even for me, as someone who has been away from Zimbabwe for a long time serving in the American mission field, when I decided to move back to Zimbabwe four years ago, which I did temporarily, and was actually doing this research, there are also a lot of assumptions that I had begun to make as a person who was away from the culture. So it was quite an interesting thing to be a student of my own culture, simply because I had been away for a significant period of time. Mm. So you had some reentry kind of turbulence, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, when you move out of your culture and you go to a different one, there are some adjustments that you make, and some of them are really unconscious uh, adjustments. Right. Subconscious, they are, they, right. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're very minor and, you know, they're not dramatic things, but you only find out when you then go back and immerse yourself in, in that culture. And I think that this is where a lot of, well, if I have to learn my own culture, you imagine somebody coming from outside who has never been in that culture, how much learning they have to do. Mm, so, yes. you know, I can speak the language. I know kind of the sensitivities and all of that, but there's still some things that I had to kind of relearn when I went back. This brings me uh, up to a, an interesting kind of a question that I've got. And I, I'm going to say that in my case, I have had some success in working cross-culturally. It's been a huge education for me. I think it, it has to be constantly approached with humility, yes. especially from a standpoint of leadership, if you're going to have any lasting impact. But still, that even with a, a humble and sort of seeking to understand rather than be understood first approach, there's still 
a lot of adjustment and <laughs> there's a lot going on then you it's not a given just because you're going to approach it humbly and with an intent right. to understand it's not a given that that engagement will be fruitful has that been your experience oh yeah that it, it's very true you know because i i think we come to the way that i have uh, kind of adjusted my thinking a little bit as a transformational leader is that sometimes I am too anxious to change things that will change themselves. And I am only supposed to be in that context to understand what's going on and perhaps to prepare people for the change when it eventually comes. Now, that's a, uh, that's a difficult thing for a transformational leader because yes. you want to get into a situation and you want to change it, Right. But sometimes you simply need to be present in that situation, learn from that situation, prepare people for the change that will come, not because of you, but because change will happen anyway. And that's also been one of my biggest learnings in the Charlotte area, where I am realizing that, you know, if I had to do it over again, maybe my focus will be would be a little bit different because change was going to come to the inner city communities that I was serving. And it wasn't going to come through what I did. It was going to come through gentrification. Right. And my responsibility, I think, was to get in there and get people ready for the change that was going to come, not because I had caused it. So wow. I think there are a lot of A-type people in leadership <laughs> who think that, you know, they're there to change things. And right. I must confess, I have been one of those people for a very long time. Yeah. And it's a kind of difficult adjustment to humble myself and realize, hey, you know what? Things that are going to happen are going to happen, even without me prompting them to. And perhaps what God was calling me to was a little bit different than what I originally thought. That is, you're opening up something for me of a concept here that I think ties back to the biblical example, particularly of John the Baptist, right? And right. those who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, children's to the fathers like that. He was sent to prepare the way for a right. change that wasn't him and that he didn't necessarily right. bring about, but he was trying to prepare an environment for a best case scenario for mm -hmm. the change that was inevitably approaching. Exactly. And Scott, think about it this way. People were created by God with a free will. So they're not going to cooperate with your agenda simply because you're called by God or you feel you're right. So if that's the case, and God knows that when he calls you, then it's very, very important for us to understand exactly what God is saying when he sends us to a place. You and I can't convert anybody. Only God can. Yes. But what we can do, we can preach the truth mm. so that when that person is ready for the change that they need to make, they have got the truth. They are without excuse. So right. I think in the past, I would say three decades there have been a lot of well-meaning people who have gone out there and they you know, call themselves missionaries as I do, and they want to bring about change. But what the missionaries of old actually did in some places, they were just present. They were not wanted. The diseases were rampant. The hostilities were palpable and very real. 
but they were presents. It was their presence which God worked through. It was not them changing things. It was God working through the presence of the missionary that he has sent to places which were very hostile. And then things begin to happen because people are created by God with a free will. Yes. You know, so in many ways, in fact, I would love at some point to share with you one of the things that came out of my research for this Doctor of Transformational Leadership is something that I call the seven principles of the prevail model for building a culture of sustained social innovation. And those seven principles, I think, they were very meaningful to me. Understanding the seven principles was very, very important for me, even for my leadership journey going forward. And, you know, and at some point, I'll share a little bit about those uh, if we have sure. time. Yes, yes. And I would love to get you back on our missions podcast as well on another session to really dig into some of those elements, as well as what you guys are working on from a missional standpoint. I know there's some big things coming and there's a lot to talk about there. If we could get back together here in the next couple of weeks to capture, I think we got a full session that we could get on the missions podcast that would just be to unpack those seven principles and to talk about the documentary that's imminent here about to be published. That sounds great. Let's do that for sure. For me as a cross-cultural worker, and again, I, I've i done a bit of this, and at the same time, I maybe I think I'm worse at it now than I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining Scott with today's Leadership Moment. We hope you've apprehended an inspirational nugget or two that, when activated in your own life, will be imparted into those you lead. You may contact Scott at scott at fxmissions.com. Visit fxmissions.com to learn more about how you can grow your own leadership and engage in missions. Until next time, good day, everyone.